Talking Animals on WMNF. Before we go any further, I want to thank Joellen Schilke, who hosted the show in my absence two weeks ago, and Bev Capshaw, who filled in for me on last week's show. They both did a terrific job, and I'm truly grateful to them. I'm also grateful to be back. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is National Geographic photographer and conservationist Carlton Ward Jr., a Florida native who's traveled and photographed globally. His first book was The Edge of Africa. Ward has, in recent years, emphasized shooting in his home state in an effort to call attention to and protect Florida's wildlife. In keeping with that professional and personal mission, Ward has devoted years to photographing the Florida panther, capturing extraordinary and extraordinarily rare pictures of these elusive and endangered big cats. Ward's latest photos are featured in the April edition of National Geographic in a story entitled Return of the Florida Panther, which may ultimately be more of a cautionary tale than the title suggests. I posted a few of the photos on my Facebook and Instagram pages. We'll discuss the processes he used to capture these striking photos, as well as his perspectives on what measures Florida may need to take to provide ongoing protection to the Florida Panthers' habitats and the cats themselves when I speak with Carlton Ward in a few moments here on Talking Animals. Later in the program, I'll speak with Dr. Brian Franks, Assistant Professor of Biology and Marine Science at Jacksonville University and also a member of the Science Advisory Committee at OSEARCH and as such an ideal person to discuss a shark named Adit, clearly an ambitious swimmer, having traveled from Nova Scotia, where she was first tagged by OSEARCH, to our very own Tampa just a few days ago. We'll hear more details of Adit's impressive journey and its implications later in the show. Right now, though, let's discuss Florida Panthers with the photographer who took stunning new photographs of them and knows these cats very, very well. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Carlton Ward on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Carlton. Morning, Doc. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals this morning. Pleasure to be here. Um, I'm, I'm excited. It's uh, almost the first day of April, and I got my own first copy of this National Geographic magazine in the mail just yesterday. Oh, wow. That must have been super exciting. Well, of course, a bit later, we're going to get to the Florida Panther and those phenomenal photos that grace that new issue of National Geographic. But to provide, I guess, some context and really a sense of mission, your mission, let's first hear some of the Carlton Ward Jr. story. For starters, as I understand it, you're a Florida native with deep, deep roots in the state. Tell me about that. Where did you grow up, for starters? I grew up in Clearwater on the Gulf Coast. Um, that my my ancestry goes back to Hardy County, which is interior to Bradenton. If for people who haven't been there, um, and my family was there for four or five generations before, and then came in from Carolina and the Georgias um, half a century before that. Yeah. So, like I say, deep, deep roots and tremendous history. When did wildlife, one kind or other, first speak to you? I think I've always had a connection or a feeling of connection to nature. I mean, 
Growing up in Florida, even in the suburban fringes, wildlife is all around, whether it's bird life or alligators. And um, I was fortunate to spend a lot of time on the water fishing. Um, I also was fortunate to have a little bit of family ranch land still, um, still in Hardy County and cousins who are full-time ranchers still and got to grow up hunting and camping and exploring in the Florida woods. So it goes back quite a ways and it's, again, sort of in your DNA, really, you could say. Yes. But it, you know, I, I don't think it, it's something I didn't necessarily recognize or consciously identify with early on. It wasn't really until I went to college and studied biology, studied anthropology, started thinking about the trajectory of people on this planet and the cost of biodiversity and the cost of globalization and really took you know some of that emotional connection I had to nature, but really got the framework and the thinking they really inspired me to become a conservationist and, and pursue that for my career. And it was, it was through studying biology, through pursuing some of these efforts that motivated me to really point my camera towards nature and conservation issues. Well, that's really interesting because I was going to ask kind of how that specific path, but already it's notable that it's clearly like a, an academic intellectual framing that you gave to what was otherwise just initially a kid growing up in Florida and taking advantage of all the cool opportunities that that affords. But it sounds like that really became different and much deeper and more profound once you were able to combine that kind of personal experience as a kid and, and beyond with the experiences you were getting in college and, and studying some of the implications of those things. Yes, yeah, I think I think that pretty much captures it. And it also, kind of going away from home and looking back on Florida helped kind of jostle my perspective on yeah. what happened in college where you meet people from around the country who they know Florida as beaches and Disney World. They don't know my Florida. They don't know the Florida that I grew up with. Um, and that, that was a motivating factor. It kind of stirred my Floridian pride. Um, and also my very fortunate early in my career to intern with the Smithsonian Institution and then work on contract on a biodiversity project in Gabon, which is in equatorial West Africa on the Atlantic coast and went there seven different times with all these teams of scientists and had this really awesome perspective changing experience about working in a truly pristine wild place with its complete suite of biodiversity that it would have had a thousand years ago and seeing the way that photography and communications could be paired with science to really amplify outreach. So that that was kind of really formative in my philosophy, my approach, my thinking about conservation photography, but also helped me understand how quickly Florida was changing. So I would go for three three months to Central Africa, come home, and there would be a new subdivision or a strip mall on what used to be a cattle ranch. And mm. it, it, was, it really helped me see, but also kind of pulled at my heart to come home. Because yeah. There were probably a hundred people waiting in line to eagerly do the type of work I was having the chance to do in Africa, but fewer people who were really focusing on the hidden wilds that we have here in Florida. Yeah, and it was probably really kind of central to that perspective and that growing perspective that you were away for even just those three months at a time or whatever and would come back just because you'd see changes, but it's not like you go somewhere, whether it's where you grew up or somewhere where you maybe went to school or whatever, and you haven't been back for 15, 20 years and you're blown away by the, the dramatic changes. These were obviously more incremental, but still struck you in significant ways. Absolutely. And it kind of um, 
led me on a quest to reconnect with my own heritage. And part of that was through that process. Other, I, I took a magazine writing class at the University of Florida. And one of the projects was a personality profile. So I went and spent a day with my great uncle, Doyle Carlton, who had grown up and spent his life in Hardy County. And I rode with him and got to see his ranch through his eyes. Mm. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget the day. He told me stories as a boy, how he would ride on horseback camping under the stars for two or three nights at a time without ever seeing a fence. Wow. So to think about the scope of change in this in his life and also to hear about his land conservation ethic. Like he believed the land belonged to God and he was there to take care of it for the next generation. And I, I realized in a different way that there was this relatively untold story here in Florida that had great implications when you scaled it out for the future because these ranches, which maybe I had taken for granted, um, and these they comprise one-fifth at that time, but now one-sixth of the state of Florida's landmass, and they're arguably the most pivotal landscape. It's either going to be a semi-natural green space or a subdivision. It's kind of those two forks in the road, and I don't want that to be a decision by indecision for the state of Florida. Yeah. No, again, you, you're already drawing on so many rich kind of sources of ways to really look at things in a, in a more significant and complex way just because of your own family history, going away to school, studying things, putting some of that early uh, Florida kid experiences in a perspective. The time you spent with the, the senior, Mr. Carlton, I mean, it, it all makes for something that obviously has placed you where conservation is one of the key things of your identity as much as photographer it seems like at this point yes i mean and probably probably more so truly yeah I, I i really early in my career i enjoyed photographing sports i shot weddings i did a lot of types of photography but i if i wasn't if i didn't have the privilege to focus my camera on conservation issues i would be focusing on conservation issues um, Either way, in a, in a different way. That's yeah. kind of the the driver, and it's part of the reason it's taken me 20 years to have my first full feature story in National Geographic because the, the mind and the energy for conservation and the energy to create the art and that's at that level. It's kind of two different lines. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and and so my my development as a as a artist and a visual communicator might have been a little slower than had I just been straight into that pipeline. But I'm. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling like it's where it's supposed to be right now. Right. But also, again, it was deeper and richer because it was informed by a, a wealth of experiences that ultimately put you at, again, a more sophisticated, complex place, I think, from what you've already described. So let's, uh, if it's not too too late to sort of go backwards a little bit, just to get a little bit more of the photographer side of the story. When did you first start taking photos, really, uh, of any kind? I played around with my dad's camera a little bit when I was a kid, but it was truly in, in college. I had a chance to study abroad in Australia, which was really an excuse to go surfing and be somewhere warm in the winter. But it was uh, it was really awesome because I, I got a camera for that trip. I documented all my experiences. My <clears throat> camera actually got stolen at a surf, surf spot called Byron Bay when we were left it in the car, and I borrowed this old Pentax K1000 manual camera from a nice guy at Ted's Camera Shop in Main Beach and took it with me as we explored the Outback and other things. I just really got into the craft of making pictures. Um, and I came back to college, you know, thirsty for anything like that. And so I learned photography away from Florida. So it was actually pretty mm. interesting yeah. to come back from college and see everything I'd grown up with as a photo op. Yeah. And, and, and see that the way the light on the Gulf Coast and kind of the 
elements that I'd grown up with had they had formed my my vision and my seeing, even though I started taking pictures somewhere else. Yeah, well, it's starting to hit what what seems to me like a, a bit of a recurring theme, which is that you would go to school, you would go to Australia, you would go somewhere, you would come back, and again, that perspective would be uh, valuable and filtered all kinds of experiences through those to end up with something that obviously if somebody was just kind of, let's say, staying in Florida, obviously the whole time, wouldn't have access to the kind of breadth of experiences and the way that some of those experiences uh, connect or ran counter to each other. So it does seem like there's a uh, a certain recurring thing here, as I say, of, of of how that point of view that really informs you as a conservationist, at least as much as a photographer, came to be over all these number of, of journeys and, and experiences that uh, that you already mentioned. So what did you like most about taking photos like when you were in Australia? Was it the sense of just capturing a scene uh, that had excited you so you retain that scene? Or was it like hey, this is a, really an artistic endeavor and I'm just kind of jazzed by what I'm doing as I kind of figure this out and sort of basically teach myself? You're asking a lot of good questions. You're going to make me learn about myself trying to answer them. Um, I, I think that it was a lot of it was driven by place. I, mean, I was truly fascinated and inspired by these vast places like the Australian outback and the 200-meter waterfall at Jim Jim Falls or Ayers Rock or meeting these really cool yeah. original elders. So that was pulling me. Um, I enjoyed the mechanical and the craft of putting that image, but then it was also the ability to share. And so then I'm I'm recording an experience, recording a place that I can bring back and show my family, I can show my friends. And this is all film at this time, but it was, yeah. it's that mix. I think that's the magic of, of photography, really. It's like take, capturing moments and sharing them in its basic term. And my, my kind of gaze on that was you know been pointed towards the natural world or or cultures and people who have that um daily connection to nature yeah well it's the difference in some ways between having a coffee or a beer with somebody and saying uh, yeah i had this amazing experience or one day i was in australia and, and i went to this beach that i stumbled into and i and this incredible thing happened and actually saying hey here's some pictures of this amazing experience that i had one day in australia i mean those are both great probably in different ways but they're very different to have the actual graphic uh, tangible evidence of what you were so thrilled about that particular day or that on that adventure so I have a question for you. I'm just thinking, how, how long How long have you been in Tampa Bay? Well, here's the thing about me, Carlton. I actually live on the other coast. I'm a relatively recent Floridian. I'm actually a native Californian, but I actually live on the other coast, and I um, come over here every Wednesday to do the show. So I'm I'm peripherally Tampa-related, but not uh, not day-to-day. So you're relatively new in Florida, but you were in the San Francisco Bay Area before that? Uh, no, Southern California. Southern California. Yeah. Well, in either place, like I, as a as a Floridian who wants people to really deeply connect to natural and wild Florida, I envy places like California and Colorado to an extent because the the natural world is more visible from the urban cores. You know, you know the Pacific Ocean's there. You you know, you, you can look back and see the topography. If you're in a place like San Francisco, you're kind of infused by nature. And in Florida, if you, unless you're out on a boat or paddling a river or intentionally going out to hike some amazing trails, these places stay hidden in plain sight. Like if you're in Denver, you can never go outside or get the soles of your shoot of your, of your of your boots or shoes dirty on a trail. But you know the Rocky Mountains are there. You understand their intrinsic value. You 
And and for for us being so flat, and there's this perception that we're, there's there's this there's a, there's a sense of place that we really have a chance to grow that can be missing. And some of that has to do with demographics. You know, three quarters of Floridians, I think, were born somewhere else. So a lot of people come with ideas and identities from other places. But Florida has a tremendous natural heritage just waiting to be discovered or rediscovered by the 22 million people who live here. Well, I think that's exactly right. Let me actually just quickly, uh, for people who might just only be tuning in now, let me let you know this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tune in, my guest is Carlton Moore Jr., a Florida native conservationist and celebrated photographer whose new batch of stunning photos of Florida panthers is featured in the April edition of National Geographic. If you'd like to ask Carlton a question about Florida panthers or wildlife or Florida generally or any combination thereof or, or just offer a comment please call 813-239-9663 email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885 so i think that's an interesting perception because to me as a relatively speaking at least a kind of a newcomer to florida to me there's so many amazing things i mean just as a, not surprising uh, given the show that, that i'm doing here with you i'm an animal guy so just the fact that you know there's a place where there's gators and and as you uh documented we're going to get into more detail about momentarily you know florida panthers and incredible birds and and all kinds of other you know manatees and so many other things it's like be hard to imagine somebody visiting or relocating here who wasn't as struck as you claim people in san francisco or denver or whatever would be you know what i mean well, no, that that's a good point, and that, and so I'm gonna qualify what I was saying because I I do think that there's an intrinsic valuing of of nature. Um, you know, we had a constitutional amendment in 2014 asking to put more money for land conservation, and 75 percent of Floridians voted for that amendment. And so it, you know, it's been tested. There's people value nature, and you're right. It might be the roseate spoonbill in in the retention pond, or the manatee you see off. Off, your, off, a do, off a public dock. I mean, there is, everything is alive in a way. But I think what's missing is kind of the geographic sense of place. Mm. Um, like, how many people in the Tampa Bay area, when you say the Grand Swamp, think of this 500,000 acre wilderness area sandwiched between I-4 and, and I-75, that's the headwaters of the Withlacoochee, the Peace River, the Ocklawaha River, um, and the Peace River. And it's it's the water supply. It's amazing hiking trails. It's amazing paddling. But it's 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 like literally hidden in plain sight. Yeah. And that story plays itself through. So yeah, it, you're right. The nature and the connection to nature is there, but the the geographic identity of where these places are and what they mean to us is um, something where we have a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Well, I have some specific questions that that, that I'd like to follow up on that, but. We've gotten a few callers here that I want to at least get one one or two uh, involved in the conversation, and then we'll get back to some of my uh, further questions for you. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with uh, Carlton Ward, Jr. Always, Duncan. Um, I want uh, Carlton, if you could comment on what my experience has been. I grew up in Pinellas County. When I grew up, photography was wonderful here because the habitats and the native flora and fauna had not been destroyed yet. So up until about 1970, you could go all up and down Pinellas County and shoot, you know, dozens of species of shorebirds, waders, all kinds of animals, you know, tortoises, manatees, dolphins. The water was clear. There were forests, lakes, some ranches, orange groves. Now it's all been bulldozed and massacred. And I started, when I saw that, I got more into photography because I realized 
realize that the human species is a bulldozing machine eating up the entire planet. So I looked at photography as a way to mem memorialize what will soon be slaughtered. And I traveled the whole world doing photography like it seems like you did. And every place that I went to 40 years ago that I've gone back to, including the American Southwest, some of the great national parks and public lands out there, as well as most of Florida, it has been desecrated. I can't even find a clear angle of shooting where there isn't a power line, a building, an oil rig, uh, an air, a, a jet trail. Nature is gone. And so as a wildlife and nature photographer, you know, I can't even find a pristine landscape unless I go way, way, way off road and it's all disappearing. So I wonder if you could comment on what you have seen in your favorite places as human population growth and development creeps in. It ruins, and for me, it ruins the aesthetic of the natural landscape. And you can see the destruction of our biosphere right in front of your eyes. All right, caller, thanks for your call. Carlton, Respond. Yeah, that's an interesting observation, and it, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a few years behind in my growing up in Pinellas County. It sounds like, and at the time I grew up, um, Pinellas County was largely built out. So that is part of what perhaps motivated my perspective as a conservationist. Pinellas then and might still be the most densely populated county in the southeastern United States, um, and so it was only these barrier islands like Caldese Island State Park, Anclo Key, Fort DeSoto that were difficult to develop. That are these little remnants of what it used to be. And those were really important places for me growing up. Um, but there has been so much transformation of our coast, but Florida has this wildlife corridor that I've been championing for the past 10 years in my career. That, Like that land I experienced with my great uncle Doyle, it is in a lot of places it's like it was 200 years ago still. And Florida has a huge legacy of conservation. We have nearly 27% of our state in public lands. We have 175 state parks. There's 4 million acres of contiguous public land associated with the Everglades in South Florida. But what's happening as we develop with 1,000 people a day moving here, if we keep sprawling on the current trajectory, we're going to turn all these amazing conservation legacy places into islands surrounded by development and and that's what i want to communicate that we have a chance to to avoid because if we invest in conservation if we do the conservation easements the selective land acquisitions expansion of public lands where it makes sense we can still tie together a green corridor that keeps the everglades connected to georgia and i i know that firsthand because <clears throat> with with the team of conservationists, we hiked and paddled, you know, the way a bear or a panther could still travel through the state up the corridor around the Gulf Coast. And it's because of this quilt of different lands and different ownerships. All those public lands I mentioned, state forests, national forests, national wildlife refuges, interspersed by orange groves, cattle ranches, forestry operations. Together, they kind of hold the green infrastructure of our state um, as a connected whole. And that's why I'm so excited about the Panther, because it is an emblem of that corridor, the emblem of that connected space. And so, yes, from, you know, from what the uh, previous caller mentioned, I'd love to see some of his photographs. Um, I don't know if there's a way for him to share some of the work he did early in Pinellas County. But the, um, there is a perception of loss, and there is loss, but there is a lot that is still here. And that's the kind of hidden in plain sight piece of it. There are places in Florida that, you know, by pursuing the panther by setting camera traps in the swamps by traveling on these ranches um there are places as, as wild here as places i experienced in africa they still have bears 
and panthers and alligators all sharing the same trails in different parts of the seasons. And it's really remarkable how resilient nature is, and it's, it's remarkable that we still have a chance for a truly a Western-scale conservation opportunity in, in the Everglades and the Wildlife Corridor that is still hidden between the coastlines here in Florida. Okay, well, I want to get into panthers and the story. And in fact, one of the texts that, uh, that has come in as we were chatting here says, got my Nat Geo this week and was so excited to see Carlton's photos. So that's uh, from Rita. So, so Carlton, I mean, you're, as we've established, you're a Florida native, a lifelong Florida guy with a lot of globetrotting experience along the way. So describe your feelings towards the Florida panther and maybe to what extent those feelings may have changed or evolved over the years? I think the Florida panther means a lot more to me now that I understand what it represents and, and the land that it needs to survive. It's, it's an incredible comeback story on one hand. You had as few as 20 panthers in the, in the 1970s, and they're up to nearly 200 today. But to ever have truly sustainable numbers and to be recovered from their endangered status, there needs to be three times as many panthers, and that means three times as much land. They need to reclaim a lot more of their historic territory, basically throughout the Florida Peninsula and beyond. And the Florida panther, you know, subspecies of the puma, the, the panther is the last Puma east of the Mississippi River. The only breeding population east of the Mississippi River is in the southern tip of Florida. A male panther has a home range of 200 square miles. That's a lot of land. That's four times the size of Miami. It's 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 such a big home range that aside from perhaps Big Cypress National Preserve or maybe Ocala National Forest or Apalachicola National Forest, if they ever get back there, no single ownership, no single property can serve the lifetime needs of even a single male Florida panther. So it requires a network of connected land. And, and that's why they're such incredible ambassadors for the wildlife corridor. Um, you know, there's, I, I have a lot of respect for the panther's perseverance, for its resilience, it, it, its ability to, to exist in these honestly kind of marginalized swamp environments. Um, nothing against swamps, but you know, there's more abundant deer and prey like, further north in the state where Orlando is now, et cetera. But the panther was able to persist in a part of Florida that was the last place that people wanted to push them out. And that's why they exist still in the east. So coming back, rising up out of the swamps, they're, they're starting to move north in the state and people are supporting their recovery. And it's, it's, so that, you know, that, that motivates me on the panther side, but where kind of my worlds come together, there was a moment in 2016, colleagues at the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission got a picture of the first female panther north of the Clusahatchee River since 1973. This is a huge deal for panther recovery. So female panthers, which have smaller home ranges than males, hadn't been traveling to the state like males, uh, males had been for decades. This female panther is documented at Babcock Ranch State Preserve, just north of the Clusahatchee near Fort Myers. And... That meant that the panther is going from a South Florida conservation challenge on life support to what could be a statewide conservation opportunity. And I, I called a generational cattle rancher who I'd met named Kerry Lightsey, and I asked him, what does this mean for you as a, as a rancher in the northern Everglades, you know, breeding panthers coming back into that landscape? And he said to me, I'll never forget it, Carlton, the panther is going to have to help us save Florida. Yeah, a pretty striking uh, quote from a cattle rancher. Yes, and I and I, I we went on to discuss it, and it's because a lot of these ranchers are are recognizing that they themselves are endangered species too. But there's no endangered species list that that describes the Florida rancher. But yeah. it's because they need that same common land 
for the future of ranching, for the future of the Florida Panthers. So that's a really remarkable and, and hopeful story to me, and, and and that's something that I want. You know, I'm up here in Tallahassee today. I'm going to be hand, giving out copies of the recent National Geographic magazine to elected officials and people here to you know help inspire and, and show the opportunities we have. Yeah, well, I, I want to touch more on the story and a couple aspects of it. Uh, and again, I just want to make sure we don't uh, get too close to the end of our time without hitting a few of these things. Uh, because the, the title of the National Geographic piece is Return of the Florida Panther. And as you noted a moment ago, I mean, there was just 20 or so cats in the 1970s, and there's 200 now. So that that's a significant rebound for sure. But despite the upbeat title, I guess I read the piece as still something of a cautionary tale. Did I misread the story, or is my interpretation uh, okay, or just a little too? Uh, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think um, <clears throat> it's probably not in the grammar code, but for the, for titles of the magazine, but I think it should have had a question mark on it. Um, okay, yeah. Turn of the Panther, because the the, the digital subtitle was, um, I think, really appropriate. How America's most endangered cat could help save Florida, but you know, the return of the panther is a cautionary tale because. On one hand, the conservationists have been doing their part. The Panthers have been doing their part. We're at a moment of, we're on the brink of recovery now, but we're still losing 100,000 acres of land every year to development. There's a new neurological disorder that might be challenging um, the Panther in southwest Florida. New roads, new development. Um, it's, it's, it's not a certain recovery, but it is really hopeful. So, you know, coming from 20 to 200 is a return, but from now what I'm, what I'm hoping will happen is that the panther, our state animal, will inspire the people of Florida to help invest in the protection of these ranches and other conservation properties that will allow the panther to basically show us what we need to do to save Florida for panthers, all the other wildlife, and ourselves. Okay. So I just want to let people know, again, this is Talking Animals. I'm Douglas Strauss. My guest is conservationist and photographer Carlton Moore Jr., whose striking new photos of Florida Panthers are featured in the April edition of National Geographic. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. And I'm going to try to get to some of the texts, and we still have a, at least one call holding. But just briefly, and again, I don't want to, given the kind of conversation we're having and the scope of it, I don't want to reduce this down to like, hey, how did you get that photo? At the same time, I mean, some would suggest that photographing Florida panthers is kind of equivalent to photographing unicorns. They're just both, I guess, so elusive. So is there one image or two that maybe people have seen uh, online or on social media, you know, well, like maybe with the four panthers or anything that you want to just at least briefly address how you capture it? Because I think, again, people who haven't seen them or people who, especially who have seen them in any context, I think the, you know, their minds are pretty blown by the images. Do so you just want to take just, just like a moment or two because there's more questions sure. I want to get into and, and I want to try yeah. to get to as many of these texts and emails as we can, but we are starting to run out of time here. You know, a quick answer on that is definitely the it's definitely the biggest challenge of my career. Um, as much time as I spent in the Florida woods, I've only seen a Florida panther twice with my own eyes for sure and went once with a camera in hand, so I, I relied on camera traps, this, similar techniques to what I was working with in Africa a decade or two before. It's a studio with a professional camera and strobe lights that you basically set up in the wood with an infrared trip wire or LIDAR laser being triggered where the animal comes through and takes its own picture. Um, sounds simple enough, but there's 200 of these animals spread across millions of acres and they're primarily nocturnal and you need to catch them 
you know, it, it took me anywhere from two to, in some cases, five years of a camera trap in one spot to get some of the pictures you see in the magazine. Wow. That makes sense because it seems like it would take tremendous patience and tremendous, well, technology, I guess, in a sense, but also just tremendous luck in some cases just to, to have that panther walk through where that trap was or just to otherwise be able to, to capture him. But um, let me try to get to some of these uh, emails. And one thing also, too, that I want to point out before we uh, get too close to the end of our time, uh, which which makes sense given the, the kind of comments and perspectives you've already shared, but really as a measure of your work as, as a conservationist and, and your expertise, you're in sort of the rare position in this National Geographic piece of being the photographer, obviously, as we've kind of noted, but you're also a source. Like, you're quoted in the story because of that actual expertise and, and sort of long lens, really, of your own. So that's pretty notable because you rarely see that in a publication, certainly, at, uh, of the stature of, of National Geographic. So that's, um, I think, I, I just want to be sure to mention that. So let me uh, let me get to a couple of these comments here that have come in. One says, a comment for Carlton Ward from Ron in Tampa. As a fellow Floridian, I want to thank you and your teammates for the fantastic work you did on the Florida Wildlife Corridor Project. That was a monumental event and inspired me to work harder to help preserve Florida. So thank you. So that's cool. Thank you. And um, let me see if we can get uh, one, at least one more call in here. Do that. Okay. Hello? Hi, you're on Talking Animals with uh, Carlton Ward, Jr. Hi. My name is Peter, and I live in Pinellas. And uh, I just got also my uh, National Geographic, and hearing you speak, I pulled it open, and I saw the wonderful photo, the first page uh, of the panther. You could see their eyes. But the thing I wanted to speak about is uh, not only do I get National Geographic, but I get a magazine or a publication weekly, Business Observer, which covers the southwest coast. And every every publication, there's almost always uh, an article about some land track down in the Fort Myers, Collier County area, 4,000 acres, 3,000 acres, Lerner or Holton or all these big corporations buying up all this property. So I guess my question for Carlton is, what can we do to stop this toll road that is going to go right through all this conservation area and destroy all this area that we're fighting for? That That is a, um, that is a really good question. Um, and I, I think it's interesting, um, the, the conversation I'm hearing in Tallahassee, there's already been a Senate bill that has undone some of the toll roads. You know, it would take away the southwest Florida toll road as part of it. So keep eyes on Tallahassee on that front because I think that is changing. Um, those toll roads have been, you know, roads in general can be a challenge. I think the road itself has obviously an ecological effect, but it's it's being a catalyst for development into new exactly agricultural areas. That is, is it really drives the really fast change that could snuff out the wildlife corridor. Um, I think we need to take long range planning for green infrastructure the way the road builders do with road and transportation planning. We spend ten billion a year. On roads and infrastructure, we need it. We have 22 million Floridians, 130 million annual visitors, but we spend just a you know, small fraction of that on our green infrastructure, and we need to see the green infrastructure as fundamental and vital to the future of Florida. It's for our water. It's for our resilience. It's for our quality of life, rural prosperity. It so happens that the Panther can show and inspire what we need to do for all those other reasons. Well, um, I thank that. you for your pictures to share that so we can make more people aware of the destruction that these roads cause. Because no matter where you put these roads, all of a sudden, all these developers see it as an exit to their development. 
Absolutely. We, we have a lot, um, we have a lot of work to do. And, 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 you know, while, you know, that picture of the Panther jumping over the log, it took two years to capture and it's the opening spread for national geographic. That, that means a lot to me. Um, but the most important part of that story is, is the, is the beautiful map of the Florida wildlife corridor. And that is the, the blueprint or the green print, if you will, of what Floridians and Florida leaders and national leaders need to do if we want to sustain a balance for the future. And I would like all Floridians, everyone listening to this program, when they hear the words Florida Wildlife Corridor, for it to conjure up an image of something that is real in our minds, just as real as Interstate 75 or Interstate 95. It is this green wildlife highway in the middle of the state that if if we don't invest in its protection it's not going to serve us for the future all right caller thank you so much We're, we have unfortunately seen of our time so carlton thank you so much for uh, joining us on talking animals today uh, we got to some but not all of the text and emails some of them were overlapping some of the things that we discussed and some of course were just more questions about how you got particular photos which i totally understand but probably not as good a uh, use of our time today anyways again the the return of the florida panthers is the name of the article in the new april issue of national geographic with this incredible photos that carlton has taken of the florida panthers i think the online version is already available for subscribers to national geographic so and again his website for more information and all kinds of projects he's doing and has done is carlton wards c-a-r-l-t-o-n ward.com so carlton thank you so much for making the time to join us today on talking animals and thanks for all your great work on behalf of panthers but all kinds of animals and wildlife throughout florida and beyond thank you duncan let's um let's get out and and see one of these places sometime i can't guarantee we'll see a panther but we can see where they walk and that would be that would be a cool thing i would be happy to go with you on on any uh, hike or or trail or walk whatever just because uh, it'd be an amazing uh, experience to have all that kind of history and knowledge and passion rolled into one guy saying hey come this way doofus so uh, all right carlton thank you so much again okay thank you have a good day you too in a moment, we'll talk with Dr. Brian Franks to hear some expert insights on Adit, the shark who since being tagged in Nova Scotia in October traveled to our waters in Tampa a few days ago. Adit is no slouch. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a new piece from what I believe is a new comic in the realm of talking animals. This is Mark Forward with a portion of a much longer piece called Don't Feed the Wildlife in today's comedy corner on talking animals on WMNF. I uh, went camping and I opened a bag of peanuts. You ever notice when you open a bag of peanuts in the woods, chipmunks come out of nowhere? <laughs> chipmunks love peanuts. They get fucking excited about peanuts. I opened this bag of peanuts. Three chipmunks came out of nowhere, formed a semicircle around me. They locked their tiny little arms. They started swaying and singing. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, right? Because I do not, I do not speak chipmunk. The one picked up his tiny little paw and he pointed right at me. And he said, you, sir, are 
you're gonna give us some of those peanuts. <laughs> what a foul-mouthed little rodent that guy is. He was the leader, though. You could tell right away. He was wearing a little bandana. <laughs> Pulled out a switchblade. I thought he was coming for me. But no, he just cut the chipmunk beside him. Just to show his dominance. He stuck his paw on the wound. Drew blood on his face. Never losing eye contact with me. Had a tattoo on his arm that just said nuts. Here's the thing, they shouldn't even know what a peanut is. Peanuts are not indigenous to North America. Just blew half your minds right there. The other half were like, we're traditionists. That was Mark Forward in today's Comedy Corner with a portion of a piece called Don't Feed the Wildlife, taken from one of his uh, live performances. Now it's time to speak with Dr. Brian Franks about Adit, the shark who for some of us has become something of a celebrity, having covered 3,000 miles, at least that we know about, and that's just since being tagged in Nova Scotia and turning up a few days ago in waters near good old Tampa. That's some swimming. This is Dr. Brian Franks on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Franks. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Thanks uh, so much for joining us and kind of rearranging your schedule to do so. So since this ADEAT story is really uh, an O-Search story in some ways, let me start by asking you what O-Search is and what its mission is. Sure. So O-Search is an organization, you know, dedicated to uh, scientific research and education. And particularly uh, one of the, the main projects that uh, we are currently working on is is trying to understand the biology and ecology of white sharks in the northwestern Atlantic, which is basically, you know, from uh, Newfoundland up in Canada all the way into the the Gulf of Mexico, and um, you know, we're we're trying to understand as much as we can of the entire biology and ecology of the species, from uh, you know what it's eating to some of its reproductive biology to its movements and migration. Okay, so not surprisingly, those of us who live in Tampa, or at least host radio shows here, were struck a few days ago about hearing about this shark who swam some 3,000 miles, turning up in the waters near here. And again, that shark is Adit. So, which I should note, by the way, looks like, in print like Edith with an E at the end, but uh, learned the proper pronunciation just before the show. So what else can you tell us about her? Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned at the start, Adit was captured and tagged and released in, in Nova Scotia, Canada in October of last year. And um, one thing about Adit is she is really showing us a beautiful kind of track. Uh, she's what we would call a pinger in that uh, the way we track these animals, the, the transmitters uh, are satellite uh, linked. So the animal needs to come to the surface in order for us to receive a location. And, you know, some animals tend to just stay a little bit uh, uh, further down in the water column, and we just don't really hear from them all that frequently. But Adid is one that's, that's really given us some, some great data. And fairly soon after tagging, you know, she made her southerly migration and continued straight down, you know, around the Keys and into the Gulf of Mexico, which is, you know, um, not unprecedented for these sharks. We've had 
multiple animals from from uh, both males and females and immature and mature animals move into the Gulf of Mexico. And her pattern was interesting and it, and it follows, you know, what we are seeing with a lot of these animals, whereas they come around, you know, the Keys, they tend to stay along the West Florida Shelf. And a few of them have gone up into around DeSoto Canyon, which we know is a very productive area in terms of a lot of life and potentially a lot of food for her to eat. And as she's coming back down, um, you know, towards the south a bit, she has come onto the shelf closer to Tampa, which is quite interesting. And, you know, a deet is what we would call kind of a teenager or a sub-adult female white shark. So she's not reached maturity yet. Um, but her her path is very interesting in that it shows us, um, you know, that these animals do um, move very far distances, quite far distances, but also... Um, seem to commonly follow a lot of similar paths, which, of course, you know, these animals are following those paths for a reason. So she's been a great animal for us. And, um, you know, I look forward to seeing her data over the next few years. You say following a similar path. So has her 3,000 mile journey and its course, I guess, been not that unusual then overall? Or has it had some distinguishing traits compared to some of the other sharks that have been tracked in the same kind of program? Sure. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's unprecedented. It's definitely, you know, um, some of our animals, many of our animals, when they come into the kind of coast of the southeastern U.S. in the wintertime, they don't go down to South Florida and maybe stay more in the Carolinas and northeast Florida. But we have had, as I mentioned, a handful go around into the Gulf of Mexico. So in that regard, you know, it's not necessarily unprecedented. But um, the one thing about Adid is, as I mentioned, on her way back, or seemingly on her way back, which I'm guessing she will continue moving around uh, back through the Keys and around the east coast of Florida. But she has come onto the shelf um, a little bit closer in towards shore, which, as I said, many of our animals kind of follow that West Florida shelf, which is quite offshore of the west coast of Florida. And then, like I said, we've had a couple of animals move into that DeSoto Canyon, but those movements are very interesting to us because it suggests, you know, she's going to areas potentially where there are more food options for her. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, her track being as, as kind of regular as it is, is a great one for us because we get uh, very frequent updates for her location, which makes it, which allows us to answer certain questions about the pathways that they're following. And it sounds like question I was going to originally ask, but it sounds like you've really kind of addressed it in a sense already here is wondering based on uh, other research and, and or other sharks, are there projections about where uh, AD may be headed? And it sounds like there kind of are. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just based on, on other animals that we've tracked over a multi-year period. Um, so as I mentioned, they come down into this region of the southeastern U.S. in the winter um, and usually by spring, early summer, they begin making their way back north again. So, you know, my prediction would be AD would continue to move uh, kind of south, loop around uh, the Straits of Florida, and head back toward, towards the north. And, you know, we do see considerable what we call fidelity in these sharks, whereby they tend to use uh, similar or the same areas over and over again in subsequent years. So, again, my prediction would be AD by late summer, early fall, would be back up around Nova Scotia again, and then next year follow a similar pattern. And similarly in the winter, I mentioned we have had animals move into the Gulf of Mexico, and for animals that we've tracked over a two-year period, a lot of times those animals will go back to the Gulf of Mexico again. So 
they seem to have kind of preferred areas that individuals like, and there's a lot of repeated patterns that we see. So I would guess ADEAT would be back in Nova Scotia waters uh, by late summer, early fall. And again, that can be kind of tracked, if I'm not mistaken, by uh, osearch.org, O-C-E-A-R-C-H.org, to track ADEATs and others' uh, paths. So, Dr. Franks, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I really appreciate the info, and we'll keep uh, keep an eye on ADEAT and where she's going. Thanks so thank much. Thank you very much. It's thank t- you. Talking Animals.